Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode of Everything Under the Sun is sponsored by NHTSA. Sadly, in 2020, 24 children died of pediatric vehicular heat stroke, and many of those incidents occurred when parents or caregivers simply forgot the child was in the car. A child's body temperature rises three to five times faster than an adult's. So if you see a child unattended and you can't locate their parents, call 911. If the child looks unresponsive, do whatever it takes to get him or her out safely, including breaking the window. Your actions could save the life of a child. From AccuWeather.com, this is Everything Under the Sun. It's our weekly podcast featuring in-depth interviews with experts from AccuWeather and from around the world, bringing you behind-the-scenes information, stories, and news on the weather, climate change, and the outdoors, covering topics from the worlds of science, sports, and space. It's all the information you need to weatherproof your life. And now, here's the host of Everything Under the Sun, AccuWeather meteorologist, Dean DeVore. And friends, welcome into episode 11 of our summer series here on Everything Under the Sun. It's great to be with you. You know, looking at things, uh, it is getting to be that time of year when many of us are getting back to school in mind. Our kids getting back to practice on the practice field. It's uh, still summer in a lot of places and still a lot of bad weather. How does the heat, humidity, the air quality, the smoke, everything that we've been talking about in the weather the last few weeks, how does it affect your youngsters as they get ready to compete in athletics here as we go into the fall? We're going to talk with a Penn State athletic trainer about that. We'll also talk about the Florida red tide, that algae bloom that gives a off-putting color to the Gulf of Mexico on the west side of Florida, whether or not that had an impact with Elsa just a month ago, and whether Fred, a tropical system that'll be coming up into the Gulf, will affect that as well. Those are our two main focuses of topics. And then coming up, we'll talk with our hurricane expert at AccuWeather, Dan Kutlowski, about where we are in the hurricane season and get an idea of what this upcoming week looks like. That's all coming up. Friends, sit back and relax. It's time to talk about everything under the sun. For some of us, summer is getting long in the tooth. Many of us are maximizing those last weeks of vacation time that we have before fall reality set in. But for many school-aged and even college-aged young folks, summer is already over. As their fall preseason practices for football, soccer, field hockey, cross-country, and other sports has already started or is just about to start up. With all that extreme heat, air quality issues, and the storms that we've been seeing over the last several weeks, I'm sure parents and athletes are totally concerned about whether or not they're prepared for these athletic events. Well, Penn State athletic trainer Dr. Michael Gay, who works with Penn State's track and field and cross-country programs, while also, over the last several years, researching and advancing the diagnostic approach to sports-related mild traumatic brain injuries or concussions, is really an expert on how folks should prepare and what we as parents should look for in our kids as we get them ready for this fall sports season with these two- and three-a-day practices coming over the next couple of weeks. Let's talk with Mike Gay here on Everything Under the Sun. 
So it's uh, great to talk with uh, Mike Gay, who has been with uh, Penn State. Uh, well, you came here, Mike, I think in the 90s, right? Uh, and yeah. have been here ever since, gone to school, worked your way through three degrees from yeah. dear old state. And so it's great to have you as uh, primarily now your your function is uh, assistant athletic trainer for our track and field programs, both the men's and the women's and our cross country. And uh, certainly uh, cross country athletes are back in already here, getting ready as we get ready for fall, the fall sports at Penn State. Um, I know women's volleyball started their three a days in South Gym there. And, you know, we've got thousands, millions really of high school and um, middle school and young athletes getting ready for this fall. And we got so much heat and humidity, Mike, and air quality issues with smoke and ozone and everything. So wanted to talk to you a little bit about what we can do here and maybe some advice for parents, especially as we get kids ready. I mean, it takes its toll, I, I think, uh, especially coming off the summer and especially coming off COVID where, you know, things over the last 18 months weren't as as regulated or things weren't as normal in terms of preparing kids and especially the high school and, and younger kids. So really important thing to keep this in mind here as we ramp up into this fall sports season, how we can keep kids safe. Is that true? Um, yeah, there's a lot that really needs to be done from a personal standpoint and then from an infrastructure standpoint, right? For not only for, for parents, but also for organizations that are hosting and, um, and practicing with kids. One of the biggest things that we recommend as a as an all stop for getting used to the heat and the environment is really a process called acclimation. In some states, there's actually legislation that dictates an acclimation period, and that can be anywhere from uh, 10 days to 14 days, a two week period. Um, but really, parents and, and young people should be getting used to exercising again, and then sort of gradually exposing themselves to the combined effects of exercise as well as exercise in whatever environment they're in. You can do that as a gradual process over time, and it really should be done um, before you head into the fall season and fall sport. So you should really sort of look at some, some processes for acclimating to the weather around you, both with exercise, and then if you're also an athlete that wears pads or has equipment, um, you should gradually get used to that equipment because the equipment can change uh, what happens to your body, and it also can make you a little more susceptible to some of the heat illnesses, the common heat illnesses that we see. This was a common theme when we were watching the Olympics and we were hearing a lot because, uh, you know, it was pretty warm and humid in Tokyo. Um, I think especially uh, the marathon runners got affected up in Sapporo and and they were talking about how a lot of the teams had done their homework and actually left other places to come into like Florida to do some acclimation training in that couple of weeks ahead of going over to Tokyo. So, yeah, I mean, if, if it's good enough for Olympic athletes, it needs to be something that uh, youngsters think about uh, in the in the very beginning stages, right? Yeah, very true. The body actually had, goes through a physiological process of adapting to those stresses. You can't, don't want to get too thick into the weeds, but it creates a lot of proteins that help stabilize um, the cells at a, at a very small level. So again, it's a really important that athletes uh, try to get as much exposure to that environment in a safe manner as they can. So their body can physically adapt uh, to that heat and that change in weather. That's going to 
uh, give them the best leg up as they go into their fall season and fall sport. As you've been doing this for 20 plus years, I mean, it is pretty amazing. I think about when I was a kid in the 80s um, and, and playing high school sports. I mean, we we were lucky to, to have a coach give you a, an exercise program. But now, I mean, uh, even the high schools have been much more in tune with this. You know, a lot of great trainers uh, get their education places like Penn State and other places. They go work with high schools and stuff. So some of this is getting more ingrained. But again, I think part of it, too, is because things were just so all over the map in the last 18 months. Uh, maybe some people forgot about that kind of stuff. So it's really important to maybe check in as a parent with your your athletic trainers of your high school and your and, and those and see where we are going into this uh, fall sports season in 2021 versus where we've been in the past. Do you think that's a good idea? Yeah, and we really learned a lot about those processes as we entered trying to train or exercise in a, in a COVID era last year. We took a very measured and progressive approach as far as Penn State athletics. We had uh, several meetings from a, a, from a sports performance standpoint with athletic me- medicine, sports science, everybody getting involved so that we did a very gradual acclimation to exercise. It wasn't even, at that time, it wasn't even about environment. It was about exercising and just getting back into the routines because there are a lot of athletes that didn't have access to facilities or didn't have access to, to means where they could practice their sport. So the idea of coming from, in effect, zero or, or a baseline and then progressing into a fall sport, there was a lot of concern about that and the potential for injuries to happen very quickly. So we paid a lot of attention to that in the fall. Unfortunately, that really paid off for us. Uh, and then we did see over time that the uh, the effects and the training progression that we did implement was very helpful and helped limit our numbers early on, especially as we moved into the fall. We're talking with Dr. Mike Gay. He is a PhD. He's got every degree, uh, bachelor's, master's of science, and a PhD from the Pennsylvania State University. You know, as an athlete, you know, you see all the sports drinks, you see all the different things. I mean, uh, you know, there was that push, well, nothing can be water, but that's not necessarily true. Talk a little little bit about that. How can we make smart decisions, especially for youngsters when we're helping them hydrate? Because that's a big thing that they need to do here, whether it's hot or not, right? As they get ready for this sports season. One of the things that that you mentioned there is is hydration, right? So uh, from a basic standpoint, water is always affected. However, when we're starting to lose electrolytes and other elements through sweat, we really do want to transition to something that replaces that. Ultimately, there's no fluid on the market currently that sort of matches the salinity of sweat. Uh, And quite frankly, I don't think a lot of folks want to drink sweaty beverages, uh, sweaty tasting beverages. So pickle pickle juice is hard enough to get through sometimes, right? Uh, Yeah, well, uh, surprisingly enough, some of the best beverages for that are are Bloody Mary mixes, but we can't. Oh, wow. Okay, we we won't go there. Yeah, we can't push those on our our student-athletes. So some of the sports drinks that are out there are, it's a very difficult road to navigate as a consumer, right? Because some of these sports drinks are not regulated very well. And they could contain stimulants in them. I I know there's some that are very popular, actually uh, levels of creatine and other elements that they just don't need in their drink. You want to just look for some basic elements in your drink with uh, sodium potassium uh, replacement in those. And then you can also look at some of the classics, like you'll see uh, some some athletes actually rehydrating on Pedialyte. Pedialyte's a great drink and when we're trying to sort of retain and, and rehydrate. Uh, that's one aspect. Another aspect is, is temperature, the colder beverage uh, is absorbed 50, 50% quicker um, than lukewarm beverages. So little things like uh, like temperature, 
frequency of taking uh, hydration status. You want to go at about one break every 30 to 40 minutes. You want to have at least three cups of, of fluid. That's eight to 10 ounce cups of fluid. And then if you want to get into the, into the details post-practice, you can do a, a pre and post-practice body weight to see how much weight you've lost during a session and, and talk to your athletic trainer about steps to try to replenish that fluid loss over time. Uh, those are all really cr- crucial elements. And again, over you want to be very careful about overhydrating as well. That's a very serious uh, issue as well. You want to pay attention to your thirst mechanism. And you want to sort of go by some of these guidelines in terms of fluid replacement, forcing fluids. And for somebody that has been following regular fluid intake, isn't really helpful and can lead to some other uh, very dangerous uh, conditions. But uh, you want to make sure you're paying attention to thirst and just follow some of the real basic guidelines in terms of fluid replacement. Look, let's be honest. There's always been some push and pull between coaches who are trying to get toughness out of their athletes and health and safety. And I think what I've seen being around college athletes and college programs is the training staff now has more tools, steps up and keeps reminding and helping the coaching staffs to make sure that the hydration and then the rest and the things that the the athletes need to conquer the weather situation. That may not be the case as you go farther down in high school. And so I think then it becomes up to the parents to kind of keep monitoring that, talking to their kids, right? Making sure. And, you know, you want to keep it balanced because you want to, you want to understand that the kids have to acclimate, as you said earlier, and get used to these conditions, but there's got to be a balance. And if you think there's not a balance, well, first of all, what are a couple of signs that you would look for in one of your children that may be suffering from some heat stuff? And then how do you talk to the coach? How do you talk to the athletic director at the high school about, hey, I've got some concerns here? Yeah, I agree. Those are tough conversations to have, in particular, when you have uh, sports that have a, a, a cultural background where you're talking about toughness, resilience, et cetera. But toughness should come on the on the playing field, not necessarily on the preparation for play. You know, that should really uh, be separate from now. And I think we're, we're getting to that point. It's better. But again, it does take some diligence through by the parent and communication to their, their son or daughter in terms of how they're feeling, uh, you know, before and after practice. What happened at practice, anything that should come up that should be a red flag is something that you can um, certainly address with the uh, athletic department as well as the coach themselves. So uh, I think it's something that, uh, you know, in terms of health and safety is something that should be addressed and, and, and should be communicated effectively with your coaching staff. And if something can't be concerted, then, then you really need to do what's in the best interest of your son or daughter. So Mike, let's go through some of those quick signs of dehydration and problems with heat exhaustion. Uh, give me some of the examples that we'd be looking for as parents or coaches. Yeah. So these are really important to understand, right? And part of this is educating yourself as a parent or a coach so you can recognize some of these early warning signs of heat illness. And when kids find it hard uh, to keep playing, they sort of have a loss of coordination. They feel dizziness or faint, maybe some profuse sweating, maybe more so than normal. If you sort of, that's where getting to know your student athlete is really beneficial. If there's something out of the ordinary that would uh, typically not be occurring along those lines, you may have somebody that's beginning to uh, suffer from heat exhaustion where you'd recognize those signs and symptoms, and then you want to remove them from that environment, right? Get them to a cool place. Start, if they're conscious and alert, you can start hydrating them, water, sports drinks, anything like that. Anything you can do to sort of reduce the environmental effect on that athlete is going to be beneficial for them. And then, and ultimately keep them from progressing to 
a further and further stage of, of heat illness and heat stroke. As a trainer, are you constantly watching the weather for those situations? Because, you know, it's heat, it's humidity, it's uh, relative humidity. How easily can the athlete sweat or not and those things? So um, I know talking to your boss as much as I do, Renee, even now the trainers are really about lightning and those kinds of things. They're kind of the people that are kind of liaison between weather and and stuff, too. So uh, you're watching the weather constantly, I would assume. All the time. And uh, AccuWeather is in my back pocket. There are a lot of times where I to reach out to forecasting to try to find out the timing of certain things and then the conditions under which uh, we can compete. And so in the fall, when we host our cross-country meets, we have several hundred um, student-athletes that are out there running. And if it, it's ever getting to the point where we're reaching some of these critical environmental conditions, we make calls. And, you know, in the past, we've had to cancel some races, in particular, given uh, the differences between college athletes and elite athletes, and then some of the high school athletes that come and, and come and compete. So we have to be concerned about their level of uh, competition, their physiological status as an athlete, and then also look at the environmental conditions. And we've had to make some some difficult decisions and have some upset uh, coaches and students. But to be quite honest, I'd rather have upset people than in an empty medical tent than the opposite. So right, yeah. uh, sort of prepare for the worst and hope that things work out. And if you ever have a, a sort of a red line, you've established that before the, before the event. And so when it happens, it's no surprise to anybody. Mike, thanks for spending time with us. Great information. Um, and I hope uh, we get to talk and I'll talk to you soon in person. Okay. Awesome. Thanks so much, Dean. If you'd like more information about Mike, you can follow him on Twitter. His Twitter handle is TrainerMikePSU. That's all one word, TrainerMikePSU on Twitter. And he also um, helps with this great website. If you've got a concussion issue, we didn't even get into that. That's something I think you know we can get into another time with Mike about concussions. But great website uh, I've spent some time on over the last day or so just looking at concussion.psu.edu. That's concussion.psu.edu. Great information there. And, of course, uh, Mike, uh, will <laughs> he's pretty entertaining on Twitter. You might want to follow him. Thanks so much, Dr. Michael Gay from Penn State. You know, when we come back, we're going to talk about something that maybe folks in uh, western Florida and the Gulf of Mexico, those areas, know a lot about, but others don't. But it's uh, certainly something that uh, is interesting. It's called the Florida Red Tide. It's a bloom of algae that causes discoloration and problems in the Gulf of Mexico. And how is the recent storms, including Elsa last month and maybe Fred this month, looking at affecting that? Let's talk about that when we come back to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Whether you're at home getting ready for work, packing the kids' lunch, or commuting, listen to AccuWeather Daily. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, and you'll get the top trending weather story of the day every day. And welcome back to Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore. Episode 11 of our summer series, the uh, second full week in August. Where is the summer gone? You know, we ran across an article the other day about the Florida red tide, a phenomenon whose, for those who live on the Florida Gulf Coast, they probably know about it real well. It's a bloom of algae-type organisms that can produce toxic effects on birds, fish, and wildlife. And while that toxin doesn't necessarily directly affect humans, it can pose a threat to them, especially if they ingest organisms like fish or other wildlife that has been in this red tide and been affected by it. The article we saw was soliciting opinions from experts on whether 
Tropical Storm Elsa at the beginning of July actually helped or hurt the situation. But with another tropical system coming through that area this coming weekend, and to gain more of an understanding about this phenomenon, we reached out to one of those experts in that article, Dr. James Ivies from USF, the University of South Florida, an instructor there. He's also spent years researching and developing systems to monitor and track these blooms and how to deal with them. So let's learn more about the Florida Red Tide with Jim Ivey right here on Everything Under the Sun. So, Jim, for those of us who have never experienced this, uh, it's pretty common. I I think Eastern Gulf, there's some other parts of the country in the world that do see these kinds of algae blooms that are called red tide or some form of that. But uh, just talk us a little bit through about how these come about, how common they are off the coast of uh, Florida there on the west side there in the Eastern Gulf and talk about uh, what are some of the effects. So let's start with how common is this? Does this happen yearly? Does it happen over a period of uh, maybe a couple of times a year? How common is this uh, occurrence? Florida, what we call Florida red tides, it's a tiny little single cell creature called a crinia brevis. It's kind of almost like just like a little heart shaped creature with a um, thread hanging off the back of it. They actually swim. And they're also photosynthetic. So they're uh, they're an algae type. And but they also eat stuff, too. We're finding out now. So they're they're very diverse creatures. And ours, we typically see a peak in activity around somewhere around October. They start offshore about 10 to 50 miles offshore. And then the depending on how the currents and the weather patterns are, they can get pushed inshore where they, we start to see the blooms. So a bloom is where you get a large concentration of the cells of this algae, enough so that it, you can see the change in the water color sometimes. And they produce a toxin, a brevitoxin that um, basically paralyzes animals with higher nervous systems, fish, dolphins, and and sea turtles and such. And they basically drown in the water. And as they drown, they rot and they give off ammonia and some other nutrients that feed the red tide. So they're kind of self-sustaining that way. That's amazing. So um, now there's also a component too that um, feeds into that as that bloom is coming towards the shore because of the currents. If there's a lot of fresh water that's coming off the land into the ocean, that kind of gives also some fuel and some food. And and we had a situation where we were been wondering since Elsa went through back in early July, Maybe we would start seeing some of the effect of that. But as we record this podcast and we drop it early Friday morning, it looks like we're going to have another tropical system up through that Western Gulf. So uh, Fred or whatever it is at that point uh, may also contribute to this. Is that true? It's possible. Um, It's a mixed thing of what can happen with storms. So Florida red tide, Perennia brevis, is a very slow growing organism. Because it does a lot of things. I mean, it swims, it is able to produce toxins, it can sense light, swim towards light. But because it's so complex, it grows very slowly. And so that if nutrients come in in the right proportions, then other types of algae like diatoms and such like that, they grow faster while competing. So when we get a tropical storm come through, two things can happen. It can either through currents and wind and such aggregate the tide. And if it puts just the right amount of nutrients in their already existing tide, like we saw happen after Elsa, we suddenly get higher levels. Right. But over time, it consumes the, consumes the nutrients and the natural flushing of the bay helps push a little bit of it out. And then possibly even, you know, changes in temperature and other things that could affect it. It diminished and we don't have any in the bay yet currently. It's now outside in the Gulf. It's like weather forecasting. You got to look at about 17 different levels, right? It seems like uh, exactly. what's coming down, what's coming, how the currents are. Um, and then, of course, those storms reshape 
the currents of the water in the Gulf and those kinds of things. And then also changes the temperature of the Gulf too. I mean, uh, you know, the Gulf this time of year, I mean, it was so ripe uh, when Elsa came through in terms of energy. It uh, dropped a little bit, but then it heated right back up because there's not been anything going on. So those are all things that uh, must be interesting to watch. Now, we're looking at, you said, uh, you know, especially, you know, higher functioning animals that have uh, nervous systems. I would think uh, that we would have concern about humans, how much problematic or how problematic is this for humans to encounter water that has this red tide in these organisms? If somebody has a respiratory disease or you know, uh, anything that's weakened their lung functions or possible allergies to it, the cranial brevis it's not a, it doesn't have a hard casing on it. It doesn't have a hard cell wall like some other algaes do. It doesn't have cellulose or, or anything on the outside of it. And so whenever it hits wave action, it bursts open and the toxin is dispersed into air. And so that's the reason you start coughing, your eyes start watering when you get near shore. So those are the main people to worry about. I mean, you do not want to eat the guts of a fish that's been in red tide because the liver can concentrate a huge amount of the toxin. Right. Um, the general... If it, the fish is active and swimming about, you catch it even in the middle of a red tide. As long as you wash it well and um, fillet it and don't eat any of the internal organs, um, it's actually fine, at least according to the experts. Now, shellfish are the opposite. That's where humans really, a lot of times, are poisoned by um, harmful algal blooms. Is shellfish filter water and concentrate the toxins at such a high level. There is a species called uh, Pyridinia bahamabens. We've got one variant of it in the bay. It makes the water turn the blue-green from all the bioluminescent. Well, ours is not very toxic, but over in the Pacific, there's a, a another variant of it that I believe in the 80s in Guatemala killed um, probably 80 to 100 people from shellfish wow. and put thousands in the um, into the hospital. And that's where mainly it affects humans. We're not in the water enough and taking in enough of that water mixed in with the toxins. Right. The effect just like it does the fish and the dolphins and the sea turtles and such. We're talking with Dr. James Ivey from the University of Southern Florida, USF down there in uh, Tampa, and uh, has a front row seat for these uh, blooms and these algae blooms. So you said that, that it's kind of waned away and kind of pushed back a little bit. So are you really taking a look at this weather forecast for Fred as we go through the weekend and, and take a look at that and then kind of try to map out how that's going to affect these algae blooms and the red tide as we go through the rest of the summer into the fall? Well, the person that actually does that is um, Robert Weisberg, um, a professor over at the College of Marine Sciences here at USF. And so he's published quite a bit on it. Um, it's a very difficult thing for him to do as he recently in the 2017 balloon, um, he noted that some people noted that Irma, the runoff probably helped fuel the balloon a little bit. But then again, as other storms came by, some of them pushed the red tide up into the up towards the panhandle. Other times if the storm comes by, it'll shut down the upwelling, the, the cold water that comes from deep up that's high in nutrients that we think actually initiates these blooms. According to his research, sometimes the storms can shut those off for a little while, which might dampen the bloom some. Now, what we're worried about with this current situation is the red tides no longer in Tampa Bay. Um, the levels that they're seeing, they're not seeing any levels. I mean, it's already, the organism's always in the background, but they're not in high enough to be toxic. Right. We're now seeing them along uh, the West Florida Shelf and some pretty high numbers along the beaches. As we approach October, and depending on what storms and stuff do, if they push a large amount of them inshore and they mix with this existing red tide, it could be a, a, a terrible red tide like we've seen sometimes in the past. Well, that's certainly something we'll keep an eye on. And if we see that, uh, get us in contact with us and we can talk to people about it. 
you know, it makes the color look red or crimson or kind of rusty. It, it reminds me a little bit. I mean, we get a lot of uh, mold and uh, things up here in the, in the Northeast, and it kind of looks like that. It has that kind of reddish, brownish tone. doesn't always look crimson, but uh, you will see it if you know it. And um, certainly, you can get more educated. Is there some resources for people if they want to learn more about this through USF or other places where they can get more information about red tide? Oh, absolutely. There's, there's several good places here in Florida for information on it. I should mention that the the actual red tide cell itself here in Florida, what we call a red tide, is the reason it appears red is just a lot of it floating at the surface and the angle of the sunlight hitting it. Okay. Normally, it's actually kind of a green to golden yellow. And if you look at it under the microscope, it's got a golden yellow from the pigments in it. So, so in other parts of the country, other oceans or where this could happen, it, may, it takes on a little different hue sometimes. Here in Florida, you, you can see some of the overflights. The water looks just kind of a, 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 a yellow green. Yeah. More than it does a um, does red, um, but when the sun gets the right angle, with the red sun rays get reflected off of it, so it appears red. Same way with the uh, sun appearing red, as it bounces off the atmosphere as it's coming down or coming up, without anything else in the atmosphere to uh, to obscure it. The best place to tune in uh, to look for is if you go to um, the Red Tide Report. It's issued by Florida Fish and Wildlife. They've got an interactive um, map where you can click on it and it. And you can see where the counts are and where they currently are. Um, USF College Marine Science has a, um, a red tide prediction that's linked directly on that red tide report page. So you can see Dr. Bob Weisberg's um, physical oceanography models of where the red tide will go. And then Moat Marine Lab has a, um, a page there, the red tide research institutes there, as a page which ties into some of this, including their beach report, where they got direct reports of people saying, hey, we're experiencing respiratory distress on the beach. So you might want to stay home if you have problems with that. Certainly things we'll look out for. Dr. James Ivey from USF. Thanks for being with us. Great information and learned a lot here. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. You know, if you'd like more information about this, and we'll put these links in the notes of our podcast here. Um, there's a couple of things uh, Jim pointed us to. The Florida Red Tide Report, where gives up-to-date information on where the highest concentrations of the red tide are. USF, the University of South Florida, also has an ocean circulation group providing ocean circulation models that kind of predict the movement of the red tides. And MOTE Marine Laboratory providing updates on current conditions in the West Florida Shelf beaches, the ones that are mostly affected by this Florida red tide. Again, go to the notes of the podcast and we'll give you the links there and you can get more information. When we come back, we're going to give you more information about the hurricane season in the Atlantic basis. The July doldrums are over. We're into August. We already have a name system to track. So we're going to this upcoming weekend, and our hurricane expert, Dan Ketlowski, is waiting in the wings to update us on the whole hurricane season, give us a little perspective about this tropical system that's named Fred and also about the weather for the upcoming weekend and week beyond. That's up next right here on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. This podcast is sponsored by the NHTSA. Every year, children die from being left alone in cars. If you see a child left unattended, call 911 immediately. And welcome back to Everything Under the Sun. From AccuWeather.com, I'm your host, meteorologist Dean DeVore. As we keep ticking away the days in August, uh, summer is coming to an end. After a little bit of a lull, though, the hurricane season, especially in the eastern side of things, the Atlantic Basin is really starting to pick up a little bit. And we're going to visit now with our hurricane expert at AccuWeather, Dan Kalowski, who kind of took a little vacation with the 
Atlantic Basin hurricane season had a little vacation too, with a couple of weeks of the what we call the July doldrums. But Dan, we've got an entity that we'll talk a little bit about. But before we get into the specifics of Fred and what it may do here over the next few days, let's uh, wanted to get in with you and talk again and kind of update us where we are after that couple of week break in the Atlantic Basin, how uh, things are looking now as we go through the next several weeks as we make our way towards the peak of hurricane season in the Atlantic coming up at the end of uh, September and early October. Well, basically, uh, we really started out very quickly. We had five storms uh, by early July, which uh, way ahead of schedule, uh, schedule. Uh, usually we don't see our fifth storm until like late August. Uh, so we were already uh, already uh, in the storm production very, very quickly. But we had this lull in July simply because July and early August are typically not very favorable times for tropical development because of the wind shear and the dry air coming from Africa. But now the dry air is uh, waning uh, coming from um, Africa and the shear is beginning to bust up as well. So uh, there's more opportunity. Also, one of the things that we don't talk about a lot is the high levels of the atmosphere, which actually control the what we call the venting. You know, we think of storms as like a chimney. And when you vent those systems in the high levels of the atmosphere, you know, above 20, 30,000 feet, that's what you look for. So one of those venting patterns is now setting up over the Atlantic. Uh, the, the Gulf of Mexico and the Caribbean uh, look very favorable right now as far as that high level wind pattern. So you get a storm to come into the Gulf or the Caribbean. Uh, they're going to be um, in a very favorable condition. The problem is there's still lingering shear, especially the lower levels of the atmosphere. And so that's a, a problem. But as it turns right now, Dean, we still expect this to be an active season. 16 to 20 named storms of those storms, uh, 7 to 10 hurricanes, and then uh, the uh, number of um, uh, major hurricanes will be somewhere in the neighborhood of about three to five. We already had three hits on the United States already, and that's right. usually what the average is, a long-term, right. a long-term average. So, so we're still thinking right now around five to seven hits on the United States, which is mm. phenomenal. Last year, we had, uh, we had 10 hits. So we're going to still be very, very busy this year. One thing we like to do on this show is kind of break a little bit down the jargon. So, you know, generally in meteorology and weather, if you've got sinking air, you've got good weather. If you've got the air moving vertically upwards is when you create storms and problems. So what you're talking about is, you know, we talk about shear a lot at the mid and lower levels, which can break the part, the storm. But what also is what Dan's saying is, if you're going to get a big storm, you have to have the ability for that storm to take that air. It has to rise, but then it has to go somewhere. So if it has the ability to rise and go places and then kind of cycle back in, to the bottom of the storm, it's kind of it becomes its own little machine and engine. That's when we can get these big storms. So you're saying that we're entering a period now in the Atlantic where that ability for the storms to produce all of that great circulation, not only from you know around the edge of it, which we think about with the spinning of the storm, but the also the circulation that's so important to a hurricane, which is going from the center of the hurricane up and then out and then coming back in. Right? Did I explain that's, that as well without that's, graphics? That's, ex- that's exactly right. And the other thing too about the development of big storms, they have to be very, they have to be vertical. They can't be tilted. It's like a spinning top. So when when we have shear on a storm, a developing storm, 
if that spinning top of that storm becomes tilted, it becomes unstable and becomes less likely to develop. So you want that to be, so that's what the shear does. It, it tilts the, uh, if you can think of it like a, a large cylindrical can. Well, almost, or, it, or think of it as a top, right? Yeah, spinning the, top. The stronger exactly. a top is, well, the more vertical a top is, you usually see that really tight spin and that exactly. it, it stays placed. But once it starts wobbling one way or the other, that's when it weakens and, and then the, the, all that strength seems to lose, right? Exactly. The other thing too, that you point out was the upward motion versus the sinking motion. And Right now, we have a lot of upward motion going on over the uh, the Atlantic and the Caribbean, the West Pacific, right, uh, Western Atlantic right now, whereas during July, much of July and early August, the air was sinking a lot of that area. And all yeah. that rising motion helped produce uh, tropical storms and uh, or tropical storms and typhoons in the West Pacific during July. That has now moved eastward, and that and that's setting now and beginning to become a, ba- a major factor. That's uh, one of those uh, teleconnections we talk about, right? Exactly. When things are happening in other hemispheres, and then we see kind of a reaction and then a, a pattern that's similar there. Um, and I can vouch for that. Uh, my family in Puerto Rico was pretty ecstatic with the early part of July. I mean, it was pretty dry, but then for the last couple of weeks, they have been inundated. And then, of course, Fred came through, just passed by to the south. Um, you know, the other thing you had said earlier in the season was, and, and we're seeing it still play out, is these temperature swings that are still going on. I mean, we had another, you know, below average time right before the 4th of July in the Northeast, and then we get Elsa. We just had another one, and we're going to, then we we have this really huge push of heat and humidity. I mean, up in the Northeast, it feels like the tropics. It feels mm-hmm. like we're in Miami and Puerto Rico with these dew points and stuff. And so that continues. So does that still feed into this ability to be able to spin things up? Not only the long track stuff that we're going to start to see as we go through August into September off of, uh, of Africa, but also still having the opportunity to do homegrown stuff, things that start to pop up closer to the coasts of the United States. I think the uh, homegrown stuff is less likely to occur because most of the the spin-up has to take place in the really warm, moist tropics now. We don't have have fronts uh, dipping down over the tropics like we had, uh, you know, (laughs) basically June and July. So the homegrown idea becomes less of a factor. It's these tropical features coming off the coast of Africa and moving westward, which are the ones that really uh, develop into organized tropical systems. And even even if there is some feature uh, in like the Gulf of Mexico or off the southeast coast of the United States, those tropical waves, those features coming off the coast of Africa have their ability to uh, impact that develop, uh, development in those areas. So you talk about the heat buildup over the eastern United States. That's indicative of an upper level high pressure system, which is building over the eastern United States uh, to some degree. And when that happens, again, what you're doing is you're, again, causing the overall motion to be favorable for tropical development to the south. That Some older forecasters always talked about the fact that you have to have a high pressure area to the north of the tropics to get tropical development. And that's certainly the case that we see on the weather map right now. That's interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on that. Um, So let's kind of, uh, Dan's going to not only, he's going to put two hats on, he's going to continue to be our hurricane expert, but also help me take a look as we always do in this last segment for the weather for the weekend uh, ahead and the week beyond. 
And obviously, we've got an entity that's been kind of going back and forth between tropical depression and then tropical storm status back and forth. But Fred is going to come up, looks like along the western side of Florida, eastern Gulf area. As we go through the weekend, start bringing some heavy rain to the folks in Florida. And then showers and thunderstorms as that humidity continues to be high and there's showers and thunderstorms probably throughout the weekend, all the way from Houston to Atlanta and up along the eastern seaboard to a point, a front starts to come through, giving some relief. Well, we're going to see it in Chicago overnight, Thursday night into Friday by Friday and into the weekend. They're fine. Detroit finally gets better after being inundated with storms and just all kinds of problems and flooding. And even the Northeast here where we are in State College, I mean, we've had more thunderstorms in the last couple of days than we may have had a couple of summers ago, right? You know, to combine, it's just been pretty active. So it's going to be interesting to see, to me, where Fred goes and then what is the end game of Fred? Because to me, this is a prime opportunity for something to get stuck. Like this area of low pressure, whatever it is, if it's a tropical storm or a wave at that point, that it could come up into the Southeast and kind of stick there for a while and eventually some of that moisture to come up. Just some of your thoughts. And I know we can't be so specific about Fred because this is a weekly podcast. We want folks to go to AccuWeather.com and their app and they can track all that. But just some general thoughts about all of that, Dan, as we go through the next several days. Yeah, so I think you you pretty much uh, pin uh, pin the uh, tail on the donkey. <laughs> yeah, well, the end game as far as Fred's concerned. So, like you said, Fred's going to end up in the eastern Gulf of Mexico. It's going to take advantage of the warm, moist air, and uh, pretty good chance that uh, it will become a tropical storm and heading up into the Florida Panhandle. Uh, you know, during the late weekend, uh, early. And next don't week. be surprised if it gets to hurricane status again. Or well, you know, we're looking less likely of that because okay. of uh, vertical wind shear, but. You know, it's always in the back of your mind. But you're right. Uh, there is there is uh, one scenario where it gets up into the coast, uh, the panhandle, and then drifts around. Uh, the other possibility is the high pressure area, uh, you know, moves a little bit to the east. That's controlling it, uh, controlling its movement. If it does that, what's left of uh, Fred heads uh, uh, northeast, uh, paralleling the Appalachians, bringing up a big surge of tropical moisture up the east coast and uh, during next week. So there's a lot of uncertainty as far as what Fred will bring uh, to uh, much of the United States. But we do feel confident that it will move inland over the Florida Panhandle uh, late in the weekend, early next week. And then where it goes from there, again, is like I said, those two scenarios. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think we can guarantee, obviously, a nice weekend for, like I said, uh, the Great Lakes. Uh, some much needed uh, recovery from not only heat and humidity, although they didn't bear the worst of it, the heat part of it, but they were pretty darn warm, sticky. And then with these little impulses, all these showers and thunderstorms. So break there, you know, it's going to be interesting to me. I've been kind of playing it a little close. I know the fronts, uh, the, the, the models have been telling us, oh, the front's going to just blast through the Northeast sometime Saturday, Saturday evening. And it's going to be gorgeous for two, three days, uh, Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. I've been trying to tell folks to take that a little bit with a grain of salt. Because with if Fred, depending on where that goes, that would tell me that it would limit that push of that front. And it's hard to penetrate fronts this time of year anyway. In the summer, they don't they don't move as far or as fast as sometimes the modeling thinks. So yeah, I think the forecast past this weekend into early next week is very unsettled and very unsure. And Certainly would make folks want to continue to stay tuned to AccuWeather.com. One thing that's sure, I think, as we go through the weekend and into early next week, this amazing second heat wave out west, 
with taking all that uh, nasty heat all the way up into the Pacific Northwest and uh, up into, uh, you know, Western uh, Western Canada again. That's not going to break down anytime soon. Yeah, I think you're right there, uh, Dean. The the, the uh, storminess we had in Detroit, uh, there's an upper level um, piece that's coming around this this big upper level feature, which has over been over the Hudson Bay area the last few days. Uh, and that actually creates a uh, creates a weakness over the eastern United States. And that's the reason why Fred is going to try to turn northward. But the problem is that upper little feature causing that weakness is going to lift out pretty quickly mm. as we go through the latter part of the weekend. So if Fred doesn't come up quick enough, then it loses that steering or that that pathway uh, to the northeast and gets stuck. And that's that's where that it's a meanderer, right? It just kind of meanders, exactly. right? Right. Well, that, what happens is the the high pressure area now off the southeast coast controlling it builds back westward, mm. uh, gives a chance to build back westward and traps traps the system down there. So. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, uh, once we get into next week as as far as what what was left of Fred, where it goes. Right, what it what it actually does. I mean, I mean, I look I look back to last weekend and we had that area of low pressure that just kind of hugged the coast all weekend long, you know, and right. it stuck around into Boston into the early week. And that's been the M.O. We talk about that a lot here behind the scenes in the office. Anytime it seems like, um, you know, the atmosphere wants to spin up a low along the coast right now, it's doing that. And then it's like one or two separate areas of low pressure along the coast. So, yeah, it's going to be an interesting uh, week of weather here. Got some monsoon back in the southwest, but uh, still some uh, shower and thunderstorm pop-ups, I think, as we get into um, east of Phoenix and over to New Mexico. But a lot of dry as you go through much of the west and obviously nice, dry, comfortable in the Great Lakes there for at least a couple of days in the weekend. So, Dan, it sounds like uh, the tropical folks after maybe a little bit of a well, you know, we, we've been concentrating on the on the Atlantic Basin. I mean, the, the Pacific Basin has had some stuff, too. What's just give me a quick overview of what's going on there. Uh, a storm system, which uh, was uh, well off the coast of Mexico, Kevin, no longer exists. But, the, but another storm uh Linda is becoming a hurricane and that, but that will also stay west of the uh, west of Mexico uh, for the foreseeable future. To seasonal normals. I mean, they're up to K and L. Is that normal for where the, uh, the East pack should be right now or the Pacific basin? It's uh, slightly above normal right now, but they, they also have a lull sometimes as we get into late August, sometimes while the, (laughs) Atlantic picks up an intensity <laughs> and an activity. They see it, it's like a teeter totter. Yeah. They tend to they tend to then go quiet for a week or two, sometimes even longer than that. But they have that. But actually, their their pattern has been pretty normal as far as the numbers of storms. Right. You know, it is really truly amazing. You see some of these. Um, well, we call I said teleconnections earlier, but these little give and takes where one thing happens, and then you can count on an opposite reaction for uh, another place. And and you know we see that with you know if if the cool air is coming down from Canada in the east. We're going to pump the ridge and the heat in the West, vice versa. So we can see that not only across the lower 48 at times, but we can see that across hemispheres. It's just amazing. And we're keeping learning more about those kinds of things, which is exciting as we get older, right? Now we, we, oh, yeah. we almost get more questions and then answers as we get older in some of this stuff. Yeah, some of the reason why that's the case, because our computer modeling now has gotten really good at depicting a lot of the features that we saw when we when I was in meteorology uh, you know, learning meteorology in college back in the 70s, it was all theoretical. 
And now that theoretical now is now showing up on computer models so you can actually see things evolve much easier. And uh, that helps the meteorologist to understand what's going on. Ah, yes, but here's the rub. And I think you'll agree with this. Just like anything, that is all a tool, right? And so Mm -hmm. the theoretical can still come into play if you aren't careful and get, uh, for a lack of a better way to put it, suckered in by some of the models at times. And and maybe sometimes I I just, I almost feel like we get too many models anymore. You know, like every hour we get a new model about what's going to happen. And sometimes they're not always right, as we've seen in some of the last couple of days in some of this uh, severe weather situations. Well, Dan, appreciate the time. I think we'll probably check in here in a few weeks and see where we are and keep an eye on Fred. You want to check in with AccuWeather.com, your AccuWeather app. You know, there's a new feature now on the AccuWeather app where we actually can track the hurricane right on the app, can see it very clearly and any tropical system. So these are things that the tools, not only for us meteorologists are getting better, but the consumer as well. Dan, thanks for being with us here this week on Everything Under the Sun. My pleasure, Dean. Friends, it is definitely going to be a weekend and a week ahead that you're going to want to stay tuned to AccuWeather and all our entities, our our website, AccuWeather.com, your app. And again, as we said, you can track those hurricanes and, and then also our great media partners in our AccuWeather network because a lot of work to do on Fred itself and how that's going to interact with things and the weather for the week beyond. It looks uh, interesting with the heat and humidity and more fire situation continuing going to be a rough week and so we'll keep you up to date on that also coming up next week you know with all of this heat and humidity that was been building through parts of the country we've seen a lot more severe weather this summer and we've seen a lot more blackouts in fact coming off a situation where at one point i think over a million people on thursday were without power in the great lakes because of all the severe weather we're going to talk about that situation has it been getting worse why is it been getting worse and what can we do to help get it better Severe weather, blackouts, power problems. Those are going to be one of our first focus situations next week. And, of course, we'll talk about the weather and everything else that's coming up. If you've got an idea for a topic or a question about the weather that you'd like to us to tackle here on Everything Under the Sun, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. That's accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. For our great guests, Dr. Michael Gay, Dr. Jim Ivey, For our executive producers, Ken Prell and Andrew Robb, and for all of our hundreds of team members across the world working hard every day to weatherproof your life, come for the weather, stay for your life. Come next week. We'll have episode 12 of our summer series. We'll talk to you then on Everything Under the Sun from AccuWeather.com. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Be sure to subscribe to, rate, and review Everything Under the Sun on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And of course, if you have an idea for a future podcast, just email us at accuweather.podcast at accuweather.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.